Hi and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. And so uh, this morning we come to the book of Haggai and uh, as we come to our text this morning, I'd like to acknowledge that this is not a comfortable book. And if you were hoping to come to this uh, text this morning to be comfortable or to be made to feel at ease, I'd like to offer my sympathy to you because that's not what this book from the outset does. Yes, there are times in the scriptures where God comforts his people, but in the bulk of chapter 1 of the book of Haggai, that is not what happens. However, I must add that there is hope in this little book and that hope is found in the way God sovereignly works to establish his will and his purpose through the lives of people. And so we come to Haggai chapter 1 again and verse 1. Then we read, In the second year of Darius or Darius, the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Again, the date of Haggai's first sermon was in the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the month. According to Chuck Swindoll, this date translates as the 29th of August, 520 BC. And Darius happened to be the fourth king of Persia following their victory over the Babylonian Empire, who had initially taken Israel captive. And it was between the reign of Cyrus and the reign of Darius or Darius that Israel, having started the work of rebuilding the house of God, after Nebuchadnezzar had demolished it, they were brought to a halt due to opposition from their enemies. These enemies, for some reason, wanted to be part of the building project. They wanted to lend a hand. And so Ezra records that interaction between the two groups in Ezra chapter 4. And Ezra says there, Now when the adversaries or the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, the heads of the father's houses, and they said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And then it goes on to say, But Zerubbabel, Yeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus has commanded us. Therefore, you might imagine how the enemies are going to be feeling. You might imagine how, how they, they would have felt having been rejected. You know that feeling of being rejected, don't you? It's not a nice feeling, and it works up some negative emotions. I mean, these people, they seem genuine, don't they? They appear to be helpful. I mean, they even claim to worship the God of Israel. And so you and I might think that it's a bit harsh that, that they are refused the offer of help. Why doesn't Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua or Joshua and the people take up this offer. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it get the job done quicker? Well, what we uh, 
need to understand here is that that's not always the case. What we need to understand about the enemies or the adversaries is that these people, they were originally relocated to Israel by the Assyrians, which was their policy at the time, that whenever they conquered a country, they would put people in that country, their own people and people from other countries. They would repopulate that country with other people. And so these relocated people had taken with them their religious and spiritual practices. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, we're told that these people had made figures of their gods, their pagan gods, while they were in Israel. And however, 2 Kings 17 also tells us that the king of Assyria commanded that, that the relocated people, that they should learn about the God of Israel which they did, and so they had developed the synchronized religion. A bit of their religion and a bit of Israel's religion. And we see that in a lot of offshoots of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church, where, you know, especially as the Roman Catholics did missionary work throughout the world, and they landed on, on tribal grounds, they would allow people to practice their tribal traditions as long as they also practiced the Roman Catholic tradition. And so what happened was they just synchronized things. I've seen that in my own country with some of the, the religions there that we have. And eventually these relocated people intermarried with the Hebrews who were left behind following the Babylonian captivity. And so these are the enemies that Ezra's mentioned in Ezra chapter 4. They were a mixed breed of people. They were a mixed religion. Therefore, it makes sense, don't you think, why the returned exiles were reluctant to accept the help of their enemies. They weren't on the same page. I think that's, uh, that's valuable to us. We need to guard and protect the church from that kind of thing. It's no good not being on the same page. It just ends up in a mess. And I think these people were wise enough to know that. And I dare say that once the house of God was re-established, they would have felt they had the right to promote their synchronized religion. What's wrong with, you know, worshipping one of our pagan gods too? Because we worship your God. And so the rebuilding of the house of God came to a halt as Ezra again records. And, but he says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia even till the day uh, of the reign of Darius king of Persia. It's in verse 4, chapter 6 I think it is. But wait, this is God's house, isn't it? And God had stirred the heart and the mind of Cyrus king of Persia according to Ezra chapter 1. Was it not God's will and purpose for his people to return to rebuild the house of God? even before they entered back into the land? If you haven't read the book of Ezra, you need to read it. It is so encouraging to see God at work. <clears throat> and God had stirred up the, the, the King, Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia and stirred him up to the point that King Cyrus wrote a decree to send the people of Israel who were held captive in Babylon to return after 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied many years before. And here it is happening. 
God had will and purpose in all of this was people to return and to rebuild the house of God. Does this mean that the will of God can be thwarted though? Because here they are. You know, God's will is for them to go back and rebuild the house and he's made it possible by stirring up the, the thoughts in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. They go back in, they start building, they lay the foundations and now all of a sudden they come to a stop question you want to ask is well can God's will be thwarted I think God wants us to know never never can it be thwarted so therefore along comes Darius the king of Persia now the fourth king of Persia since Babylon and he comes along in his second year of reign and so it was Darius it was in the second year as king who rediscovered Cyrus's original decree in the archives and instructed the house of God that it should be rebuilt without any opposition. And you can find that in Ezra chapter 6 verse 7 where it says, Let the work on this house of God alone. This is Darius. This is his decree. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. And then Haggai writes, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Who is that Haggai? For many of us here this morning, he's probably an insignific insignificant person in the Bible. Uh, he's only one of the minor prophets, right? And uh, he's not one of the major prophets. He's only one of the minor prophets. And in most people's thinking, the word minor means, you know, he's insignificant. Let me tell you, he's not. He's in the Bible. That makes him very important. Haggai, whose name means feast, or some say it means pilgrimage, depending on how you read the Hebrew, was one of three prophets who addressed the returning people from exile in Babylon. There isn't a lot of biblical data about him, but what we do know is that he was a prophet and his message concerned the returned exiles from Babylon and the restoration of the temple or the house of God in Jerusalem. For those of you who don't know, the, the, the temple had been demolished and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, who God had raised up to do that because God's people were misbehaving badly. They had turned their attention and their hearts and their love for God to other things. They were worshipping other things. And God warned them time and time and time and time again through the prophets, through the preachers of that time, to turn back to God, to stop worshipping idols. You know how silly and ridiculous that is? To worship an idol? You know what an idol is? It is something that cannot give you life. It cannot satisfy you. It is insufficient. And so God in, in His mercy and in His long-suffering sends prophets to witness to these people, to testify to these people that God is glorious, that God is worthy of all praise. And He did that for most of the Old Testament. For people, what a challenge that is to us. What idols do we have in our lives that we need to smash 
And we need to get rid of and take our hearts and our minds and our attention away from the one true God. So these people were warned time and time again. And God's long suffering came to an end. But by grace and by mercy, he raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to take these people captive into Babylon and to destroy the temple. In fact, the temple had become an idol to these people. They were idolizing the temple and not God. So many people are who idolize the church. And I said this before, you take this away, what have you got? Have you got Christ? And so for 70 years, these people are held captive in Babylon, and then God raises up Cyrus, stirs his heart, the Bible says, and Cyrus writes a decree to send the people back. Now we're talking about Cyrus, the king of Persia. Do you understand who this man is? He is no angel. He is not a man of God. He is a pagan. He worships pagan idols, pagan gods. In fact, they found an old stone tablet a few years ago, and it said that Cyrus worshipped Marduk. And so here we have this pagan, uh, this Persian king who God stirs up to send his people back. Cyrus was no angel. In fact, he would murder people for looking at him the wrong way. You didn't mess with him. This man, he loved power and he loved control. That's why his empire became the biggest force in the world at that time. And here God stirs him up to send his people back. What that tells us is that Cyrus might have been in control of the empire of Persia, but he was not in control of the universe. God is. Only God is truly sovereign and not Cyrus. So Haggai writes, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Haggai's name means feast. There's not a lot of biblical data about him, uh, but we know that he, he was preaching to the people who'd returned from exile from Babylon to restore the house of God. In other words, what we know here is that we can be certain of, really from our text, is that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. In other words, the Lord had placed on Haggai's heart, just like he had done with Cyrus, the overwhelming need to address the people about their sin. And I say that God had overwhelmed Haggai with such a conviction to preach this message because this is not what most people would enjoy as an encouraging message or even an uplifting sermon. A sermon like this does not make a pastor or a preacher popular. I would think that some preachers would do their best to avoid preaching a sermon like this. You see, this is a message that will either deeply convict the heart of a Christian to the point of utter remorse and repentance, or it will cause a person to feel condemned. Because in Christ there is now no condemnation, only conviction. And so on one hand, you're either going to feel convicted and therefore, feeling convicted, you will see the need to repent, to change, 
to turn or you will feel condemned and therefore your need is Christ Jesus and his gospel and salvation. Therefore, you see why most people cringe at a message like this. So in a way, Haggai is relieved, really, of any responsibility as far as any negative or, or outrageous response to this message goes. He relieves himself of that responsibility by saying that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. What does that mean? Well, Haggai is relieved of the responsibility for any outrageous response to this message because the source of the message is the Lord. And Haggai is kind of just like the postman. He's just delivering the message from the Lord. Although he's got to verbalize it, he's still only the postman delivering it. And so if these people have an issue, guess who they have an issue with? Imagine Haggai in a church on a Sunday morning preaching this message. Who do you think the people will have a problem with? With Haggai. But no, the problem is to be had with the Lord. Because he's the one who said it. Isn't that true? Haggai was just verbalizing what the Lord had already said. You know, I'm, I'm sure we can imagine how Haggai possibly felt. I know I can. I can relate to Haggai. I mean, let's face it, he was going to address the leaders of Israel. Hands up if you've preached a sermon like this before. Well, I can imagine how Haggai felt. Let's face it, he was going to address the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel with regard to their spiritual state, that it was in ruins. And instead of restoring the house of God, what were they doing? They were focused on their own homes. I mean, imagine going to your boss and colleagues at work and telling them to cease following their dreams for a better and luxurious lifestyle. And instead seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. Imagine going to work and saying that. Who's brave enough to do that? Haggai was. Imagine how they might respond. Probably end up losing your job. Losing your friends. Losing your income. So Haggai must have felt at least some apprehension, but he's compelled by the Lord as much as Cyrus was compelled to decree the return of the exiles. And then Haggai, the prophet and deliverer of this, this inspired message, is really, he's insignificant, as I mentioned before. He's only one of the minor prophets. He, he's no Elijah. He's no David. He's no Solomon. He doesn't have any amazing credentials to justify what he's about to say, except that it came from the Lord. Haggai may be insignificant, but the Lord isn't. And then we've got to be careful here because we don't want people going around saying things like, you know, the Lord told me. The Lord told me, therefore, I'm not responsible for what I say because the Lord told me to say this. That's not what I mean. You see, Haggai was responsible. And Haggai was liable as a prophet. He's a prophet. That's what it says he is. He was responsible. He was reliable, uh, liable, sorry, as a prophet to preach truth. 
And he was governed by the law of prophets, which have what he declared was false. Then he was to be stoned to death. That's how serious God takes preaching truth. Unfortunately, in our modern day churches, preachers don't believe they are responsible. Just give people what they want to hear and let them be the judge. They feel good, they'll like it, then I'll keep my job. But if they don't like it, they won't come back or maybe they'll just complain and murmur. At least it wasn't like that in the days of the prophets, was it? When if the prophet was false, they were stoned, right? Stoned to death. Well, you know what? Ideally, that's what should have happened. This is how far the people had moved away from the things of the Lord. Because ideally, that's what should have happened. However, for the likes of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Amos, when if the people didn't like what they heard from the prophet, the prophet was murdered. Isaiah was sawn in half. For the people back then, it didn't matter about truth. What mattered to them more was comfort. But at least Haggai seems to have escaped that treatment. And so we must be cautious when we say, the Lord told me. In fact, we must be cautious when anyone says something like that. We need to understand what they mean when they say, the Lord told me. Do they mean the Lord told me as I read through the scriptures? Which is completely fine. If you're reading the scriptures and the Lord has spoken to you through the, uh, the illumination of the word of God, through the scriptures, as the truth of the text is revealed, then that is completely okay. And we believe the Lord speaks to us through his word. However, if people mean the Lord spoke to me audibly, or the Lord whispered in my ear, I would seriously throw caution to that. Why? Because what that kind of language suggests is that the Bible is insufficient, that the Bible lacks power, that the Bible lacks authority. Therefore, we need a more sufficient authority. We need a greater power. And we can get that by being still and listening to the voice of God. That if we stop talking, we can hear the voice of God. If we stop reading, we can hear what God has to say because knowledge about God can be found outside of the Scriptures. Very subjective. Let me warn you now that that kind of language has a contempt for the Word of God. That kind of language has contempt for Christ. Why? Because Christ is the Word. And he himself declared in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. That's everywhere. Therefore, the word of God is the authority. Christ is the authority because Christ is the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word Christ is the authority, and yet some will quote Psalm 46, verse 10, where the psalmist wrote, Be still and know that I am God. And then they'll conclude that in order to accurately know God, one must be still. 
Because God can't speak to you if you're always on the move and God can't speak to you if your mind is busy. So you need to empty your mind. Therefore, their rationale is this. Uh, we need to close our mouths and empty our minds so that God can fill us with his knowledge. In fact, a number of years ago, I actually heard a person say this in a church. And they claimed to be a Christian and supposedly had been for quite a number of years. And they considered themselves to be spiritually mature in the things of the Lord. Unfortunately, by their own comments and admission, they minimized God's word to nothing more than just another good book but unnecessary to know the full and complete will and purpose of God because God can communicate without it. Someone might ask, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the problem with that is people who tend to suggest this kind of rationale are either not Christians because they lack the Holy Spirit who reveals truth through the Scriptures or they are possibly biblically illiterate and proud because they are unwilling with humility to admit they don't know the Bible that well. You see, we Christians can easily be threatened, can't we? By someone who has a greater knowledge of the scriptures than we do. I, I know that personally as a young Christian. You know, I would, I'd be threatened by the pastor who knew the Bible better than I did. I didn't want to talk about the Bible to him. Because I, he might embarrass me and ask me a question. And so we can easily be threatened by someone who has a greater knowledge than us. I learned that was only pride. That was my pride holding me back from asking questions. See, we Christians, we easily are threatened by someone who has a greater knowledge of the Scriptures. And the thought of submitting to someone else is too difficult. And so we categorize people like this as being puffed up with head knowledge. We do that, don't we? Oh, they're just puffed up with head knowledge and no action. Now, I must say, yes, there are people like that who are puffed up with head knowledge and no action. Unfortunately, they know a lot about the Bible, but they just never live it. They never live the life of transformation, of sanctification. And so, yeah, we, we categorize people like that, and there are people like that. However, those who are saved, those who are saved are sanctified. And those who are sanctified are empowered by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to do the will of God. Please remember that. You are saved you are sanctified, and if you are sanctified, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to do the will of God. That's what James went when he said not to be just hearers of the Word, but doers also. You will know them by their fruits. You see, the Word of God under the influence of the Holy Spirit not only illuminates the word to our minds, what I mean by that, if you're not sure about that word, illuminate, to shed light, to reveal truth. Because unless the Holy Spirit reveals the truth, it remains a mystery. And so what we mean by that is, is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate, reveal the truth to you, to take away the mystery of it, 
to our minds and to our hearts, but also by the means of the Word of God to transform us to holiness. Therefore, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we read this from the writer, the book of Hebrews. For the Word of God is living. What does living mean? <laughs> it's alive, it's active. It says it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then connect that, keep that in mind, the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Keep that in mind. In Ephesians 6, verse 17, part B says, And the Word of the Spirit, which is the... Or the sword of the Spirit, sorry, which is the Word of God. For the Word is Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now he says, Paul says, it is a sword. It is the sword of the, the Spirit. That's what it says. It's the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? Which is the Word of God. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, we know what the sword of the Spirit is now because we just read it. It is the Word of God. That's how we read the Bible. We don't read into the Bible what we think the Bible says. We read out of the Bible what the Bible actually says. And when we don't understand it, we pray and we pray and we pray. And when we still don't understand it, we seek some wise counsel from some knowledgeable people or some very, very good books. Or the Bible comments on the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. You want to know for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than what's the two-edged sword? Wow, we just found out, didn't we? And who taught us that? <laughs> God taught us that in His Word. It is sufficient. And then the Apostle Peter, when writing to those Christians who were under assault from false teachers, the people that Peter was writing it to in his second letter, they were being just bombarded with false teaching. They had people there in that day going around saying, oh, where is this Jesus you talked about? And they were trying to minimize the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Because those people were relying on the Word of God. And in Second Peter chapter 3, they, they tried to uh, minimize the promise, the promise of His coming that relates to the Word of God. And so Peter writes to these people who were being assaulted from false teachers, the false teachers that minimized the Word of God, and Peter wrote this, he said, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What does a lamp shining in a dark place do? Sheds light, doesn't it? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, that's basically, he's talking from dusk till dawn. Knowing this first of all. First of all means, first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not what we think the text says. It's what it says. It doesn't come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And finally, the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, by way of encouragement and instruction, said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, 17, all scripture, all scripture. At that time, he was referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been canonized or fully written. So referring to all scripture, but now we take it to be all scripture, meaning the whole Bible, because all scripture is inspired, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for what things? For teaching, for reproof, it's correct, correcting people, reproving them, you know, they've got, got it wrong. For correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work. And then having said that, the Apostle Paul then charges Timothy in chapter 4 to preach the word. Preach the word. Don't preach your philosophies. Don't preach your own interpretations. But preach the word. No, God does not contradict himself. If God contradicted himself, we're all in a mess and we're all in trouble. And there are places, and I was talking to someone this week, there are places in the scripture where there seems to be contradictions. We must never come to the scripture and think there are contradictions because then our view of God becomes less. There appears to be contradictions in the, in the Bible, and there are many, but we don't call them contradictions, we call them paradoxes. A paradox appears to be a contradiction, but isn't a contradiction. It can be easily explained. And so God never contradicts himself. And God's word can be trusted. You know, it's not God who has the problem with understanding. The problem is with us. God is not fallen. God is not finite. He is perfect. He is perfect in every way. And that's a hard thing to grasp, to think about God being perfect in every way. But he is in every way. And he is infinite. There is no end to him. In fact, at school this week, we started back and in our little kids' church program, we I run on a Thursday at school. We were looking at creation and I asked the kids, I stated first that God created everything. They accepted that. I said, well, now you, you tell me something. Who created God? That's what happened. Everyone just went quiet. They had no answer. Why? Because there is no answer. Because God was never created. He has always existed from eternity past. Now how... You know how long eternity is. 
And that's how long he's existed. Forever. He's just always been. Always been. And so, as we think of God like that, we must think of his word like that. It's come out of his mouth. When he created everything, you know, the Genesis record of creation, he decided to pick up a bit of clay, mould a round ball and turn it into a world. No, he didn't do that. You know the Genesis record of creation, you know he spoke it into being. It was the word that created everything. And Haggai says here that the word of the Lord, I've got more to say, but we're going to run out of time here. So I just want to leave that thought with you. And, and as you think about the book of Haggai, have a look at how many times Haggai says, thus says the Lord. <laughs> uh, Haggai's not messing around here. He wants people to know that this is the Lord who is speaking. Therefore, there needs to be action. There needs to be something we need to do. Because when the Lord speaks, creation comes into being. And so, is the word of God that powerful for you? As you read the Bible, are you challenged about your life? Are you challenged about the sin in your life? Are you challenged about holiness and the lack of it in your life? We know that 1 Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, you know, Peter writes the imperative, the command to the people there to be holy. As you come to the Word of God, is that, are you challenged by that? Does God speak to you through His Word and challenge you about your life? This way, I. Seriously, if that's not happening, it's, it might be for a number of reasons. It might be because you're not in the Word. You're not in the Scriptures. Therefore, God can't speak to you. Like I said, He's not going to come and tap you on the shoulder. This is how He speaks to us. This is the sure way of knowing what God says. You can't go wrong with it. I've said this before, that you've got a, the problem with you know, listening for that audible voice, that whisper, is that we are in the realm of the prince of the air, the devil. And if he's in the air, you better be careful if you're waiting for someone to whisper in your ear, because it might just be him. And he might even quote scripture to you, as he did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And you might be sucked into thinking it's come from God. This is the sure way. So my encouragement to you this morning is that you can trust God's word. My challenge to you this morning, get into it. And be challenged. And pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the word to you like a lamp in a dark place. And the truth, as it's revealed to you, the Spirit will transform you.
to become more like Christ. One of our points in our in our overall vision for the church, or our vision for the church, is that we exalt Christ because we believe that's how we glorify God by exalting Christ. Therefore, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's exaltation to the glory of God the Father. You want to glorify God? There's how you do it. Exalt Jesus Christ. Our next point in our vision, our overall vision, is to express Christ. Uh, if you want to exalt Christ, you can't but express Christ and tell people all about Christ because Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So we want to exalt Christ, which means we must express him to exalt him. But our last point in our vision is that we encounter Christ. That people encounter Christ as we express Christ, seeking to exalt Christ. For us as Christians, the encountering of Christ is to become more like Christ. As we encounter Christ through the Word and the Holy Spirit takes the, the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and pricks our hearts, maybe cuts it a bit, we come under conviction of the need for change and repentance and our desires change. You know what that's like.